0: to Casa de Cambio. On this episode of Casa de Cambio, I am so thrilled to be joined by Luke Galapan, all the way from Belgium. Welcome, Luke.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being a guest. Um, before we get into the main topic of the podcast, there's a couple of questions I ask all guests who come onto the podcast. And the first one is, what are you currently watching, reading or listening to?
1: what am i currently watching reading or listening to it's it's quite um it's more based on on uh, reading um and i have this book um which i um uh, which i had through some connections on twitter it's called on tyranny it's uh, from timothy snyder and it's an illustrated book um so there's there's two ways to look at this why it's uh, why i'm very attracted to this piece uh of, of literature um first of all it's about the uh, about the world and its current status and the dangers that we are running into of uh, having the same situations as the 1920s 1930s 1940s which is first world war second world war i'm very much afraid of that and the dynamics that i see going on second um reason why I love this book is because it is beautifully uh, illustrated by Nora Krug. So, I, I mean, listeners of your podcast can't see it, but um, it's definitely a link that you should share with them. Um, why I'm so thrilled about this book, because it describes in very clear language uh, what we're going through. It um, debunks some of the things we are seeing in a way Of storytelling and it says well you know this happened before a century ago you know that dynamic it happened before a century ago and it's quite a wake-up call um so this is what i'm currently reading and and what i will probably be rereading over um a few times this year okay on tyranny that's yeah
0: i'll make sure i include uh the book title in the show notes so the listeners can check it out Mm -hmm. And it did look like a beautiful book when you held it up just before.
1: It's a, it's a beautiful piece of art, the, the illustrated um, uh, version. Yeah. The graphic edition it's called. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. And the next question is, what was the best piece of career advice you ever received?
1: Well, I, I had to, um, it, you, you make it sound like a spontaneous question, but I am very fortunate that you sent the questions beforehand because I really had to think of that. <laughs> um, and, and I think that the best piece of career advice I gave myself in the very beginning of my career, when I started out as a consultant and I didn't even know what consulting was about, I was, I was a freshman, just fresh out of college, um, is I am my own HR manager. Um, mm. I was, I was for the very first time employed my very first, uh, career steps and, um, you are so taken care of when you enter uh, a corporate culture that you think, well, I just have to lay back and everything will be laid out for me. Um, and I soon came to realize that I have to be my own HR manager. HR manager in terms of the soft HR aspects. I'm not going to run my own payroll, uh, etc. but I have to take care of um, how I behave, um, what my next steps are, and I have to make my proper choices myself. Um, and then I took it to an extreme some some years later because uh, for the past 20 years I've been self-employed. That's a different story. But that, that philosophy and, and that, that small sentence, it, I still keep it in the back of my, um, of my mind. I am my own HR manager, which extends to I am responsible for my own well et cetera. Um, I have to take a break myself when I say so when I feel so etc so yeah. um, that's an important one I have a second one yeah please second share. career advice is um, and and I, I learned that very late is that um, I always should be looking for a coach um, when I when I take an important next step and a coach is not is not the person necessarily I agree with all the time a coach is somebody who um, within a context of agreement can kick me out of my comfort zone. and and I think you should be very picky on on who you choose as a coach. Mm. but um, they sh- it should be persons that are not too easy on you. Yeah, uh, but it's, you, you should pick them and have them in, in mutual agreement so um, yeah. That's quite a difficult exercise to choose a coach, but, but having one and having somebody who regularly gives you a wake up call, gets you out of your comfort zone also, also makes you aware of the things that you're doing great and you're not aware of the gifts mm-hmm. that you have. So it goes both ways. So those would be my, my two pieces of career advice that I, that are really, uh, yeah. Take with me.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Definitely hear you on the coaching. Um, Coaching does mean that sometimes i'm going to tell you stuff that you don't like
1: exactly mm. um, in, in some of my conversations um, i've learned that that we can apply a scale from one to three um, and that is um, i'm i'm asking feedback on a certain situation for instance and then the other one goes well well how are you feeling today what kind of feedback do you want do you want it all the way um with with no excuses or do you want a nice version and (laughs) just have just just making sure that that you um are explicit about that question you always go for a third option of course Mm. but but making sure that that you you build kind of a, a safety net and say well you 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 have just opened the game are you ready for it you've just asked me feedback I'm willing to give you feedback, but are you willing to take it and are you willing to, to listen to it open? Compliments open only. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I want feedback, but only compliments and good vibes. Um no, I've I've done that. So there's been days, I remember I had a manager years ago and we had a you know stressful project. And I said, look, maybe at the end of this, I said, not right now, because I'm having a bad day, but I said I would really like some constructive feedback on how I could have handled, you know, X situation better. Um, but I explicitly said I can't handle it today because <laughs> <laughs> a few things have gone wrong. But I said, you know, at a later date, let's, I would really love to sit down and, and really just um
1: and, well, you pick know, through that, that what happened. We we don't do often enough. So we have, um, we have a lot of conversations and there are a lot of books and courses out there about giving feedback, about receiving feedback, but never ever have I saw, have I seen that, um, it would be okay to say when, when somebody asks you, can I give you feedback? That that famous sentence, can I, can I give you feedback? You're always supposed to say yes. And I remember one day that that I shocked somebody who wanted to give me feedback when I when I bluntly answered, um, no, not right now. I'm 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 having a, I'm not feeling too well. Um, so I am not ready to fully. I'm not ready and capable to fully receive your feedback, but uh, can we do it in 15 minutes? And, and apparently that's what I heard later, a few days later from that person is, is that, that he was genuinely shocked by my no. Um, and and I, would, I would be in favor of, of creating a culture where it's okay also to say no to the question Can I give you feedback?
0: But you didn't give a no. I want
1: want it later when I'm ready for it. I'm totally prepared and my mindset is there for it.
0: I didn't hear a no. I just heard a not right now. And I think you're right because sometimes feedback is hard to hear and it can, you know, like you need to take time to reflect sometimes. Sometimes you can you know, have an emotional reaction to feedback, if it's very strong feedback. So if you're already not in the right frame of mind to receive constructive feedback, I think that's fine, especially if it's unsolicited and someone's, you know, coming up to you and specifically asking. Like, I I don't see a problem with that.
1: Yeah, but yeah, I think uh, (laughs) let's make that a theme for 2022. It's okay to say no, not right now when they ask you can I give you feedback and, and as you say especially unsolicited feedback
0: yeah I'm actually uh, a little bit picky about unsolicited feedback um, because yeah I, I get a lot of unsolicited feedback and an example might be a lot of people who have never have created their own podcast like to give me unsolicited feedback about podcasting Um, And usually, you know, I'll say, okay, thanks for the feedback, but I'll just be like, no, I'm going to ignore that. Um, And another one is, you know, people who have never built their own website or started their own business give me advice on what I should do with my website and my business. And I'm like, okay, all right, thanks. Didn't ask you. Um, But if it's somebody who, you know, has their own business, like if, um, let's say, Daryl Connor, the person who introduced us, if he said, can I give you some advice? I would say, yes, please. Give it to me. I want it, you know. Um, yeah. It's because, with
1: Dero that I use the one, two, three scale. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, feedback comes like where sometimes we feel bombarded with feedback and there are different, definitely different levels of feedback. Like, like if somebody is my direct manager or my client, of course, I'm going to accept that feedback. But if it's somebody, I don't know, sending me a message on LinkedIn or replying to one of my posts, I'm, you know, not going to take it give it much mind.
1: Yeah. Um. And then again, that there, there are some some gems in there, but oh, yeah. you have to be selective. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. Um. But you know, sometimes you can think, oh, I don't need to, you know, bother with this one today. Um. On to the topic, though. Great. Yeah. Great oh, chat about yeah. career advice and feedback. Um. So we're going to talk about change management and community development and some of the amazing work you've done in that field. So maybe do you want to start by telling the listeners a little bit about your experience applying change management principles to community development? How did you get started in that? And what were some of the challenges you faced?
1: Yeah. I, and I think the best way to approach this is, is, is to, uh, to see how I, I got interested into it, where it, where it started because um, there's an awful lot I, I, I would want to tell and it would, uh, it would be incoherent if I start just in the middle. So um, as as we said in the beginning or or in an earlier chat, I think uh, I started out as a consultant on uh, mainly SAP projects, which are technology enabled changes uh, for big companies. And in that project context, what you do is you you implement a new way of working, which is enforced, so to speak, by by a new technology. And um, you impact a lot of people. Now, what I noticed is that in a project context, you, you want to change the behavior of everybody at the same time. And the regular way of doing that is just pushing a new software down their throats. There is a more um, human way to do it, and uh, we can do it all along by respecting the uh, um, anatomy of the software itself. A software. Um, more or less it plays out because it has different authorization profiles, things you can do in the system. I can be, um, I have the authorization to do accounting work into the system, uh, to do inventory work into the system, to do sales work, etc. Now, all of those are different hats you can have on, or you can, those are different responsibilities. And most of the times those projects are implemented in, multiple sites, multiple countries. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets interesting because um, you want to make sure that at the end of such, um, uh, of such a change that everybody um, is independent and that they take full ownership of the final solution. And that's, that's a question that we, but we don't ask um, often enough in technology-enabled implementations is what is the end result? is the end result uh, result just installation of the software and and then we'll see how it goes and and people just have to uh have to make sure that they deal with it or is the end result people have to take full ownership of the solution and people need to have increased their own problem solving capacity now when we look at it that way and uh we want to increase the problem solving capacity of our target audience, it's a different game. We want to make sure that they can rely on each other, because when the project is adjourned, we are not there anymore. And, and to the best of your capacity, you can you can accompany people in a hyper care phase, etc. But when you step out, when there is no budget anymore for the project, you want to uh, make sure that they can rely on their own, on their own community. So. We start to identify roles. An inventory manager in one site can be the body of an inventory manager in another site. An accountant from from site A can be the body of an accountant of of sites uh, B and C. And that's when you start to connect people by giving them permission. And I give them permission to connect because, hey guys, you are wearing the same badge you are a warehouse manager and quite probably you're encountering the exact same problems as a warehouse manager in that different site or in that different location. So what I am declaring as a change manager is I declare you as a community of warehouse managers. And um, I'm also going to kickstart your small community um, by making sure that you guys come together. So I make sure that it's okay for your hierarchy that you guys get identified as the community of warehouse managers. And I make sure that you have a good way to connect, which may be in the beginning, a weekly meeting to discuss problems and problem solving. And what happens most of the times during those implementations is that people who are currently in an um, ongoing implementation connect with people who have already been put live in that new environment three years ago. And they connect, we encounter this problem and, and the other ones in the other side, other part of the world, maybe they go like, oh yeah, we, we've been there, we've done that, uh, don't worry, this is how you solve it. Um, what we also see is that when you, in those big environments, connect people through communities or, or through the batch that, that they carry, is that they turn out to be smarter than the traveling circus and the traveling circus is the implementation team who does all the um all the rollouts worldwide or or in all the sites because that implementation team quite often um, is not anymore the implementation team as it started out three years ago so there there are different people but uh, luckily the knowledge that it takes to um, increase the problem solving capacity of your company is already there and that's when i started to get interested in in the community work and that's when i also started with the term um social architecture because what we are doing in a in a technology implementation is we're endlessly discussing about the technical architecture that we're putting in place which in change terminology is all about the installation of the solution and um i would even go as far as to say that Any training effort that we put in there to get people from A to B is also part of the installation culture because it's just readiness, readiness, and then I drop you off at at point B. What we are thinking of when we install a social architecture is you put a code around that technical architecture, a human code around it, so that it is future-proof. And with future-proof, I mean that... um, and it's really in, 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 the, in the word problem-solving capacity that that community is able to continue without your support with that uh, techno, techno, technological architecture. So that's when I came up with the term social architecture. And then I, I carry on further and I investigate it further. And that's when I start to see, well, it's not only in a project context that this happens. Uh, we do this all the time. We discover layers of people uh, and we want to connect those people who carry the same badge, et cetera. I can go on endlessly about that, but does, does it make sense what I'm saying?
0: It absolutely does. I love the analogy of putting a coach on the technical architecture, but then I wanted to ask, is it weird that I what I immediately imagined was a coat with like four little animals all standing on top of each other and you know wearing a hat like something from a cartoon
1: (laughs) and and and, well in 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 a sense this is what we should be referring to but because what you're doing is is you're creating spaces of engagement with collective possibilities that are not available to us as, as an individual when when you start to connect uh people who uh, have the same set of problems and, um, and, and you give them the permission to connect all of a sudden there are collective possibilities available to them that are not available to them when they are isolated individuals uh, and that's in fact what we're doing.
0: Nice. So, nice.
1: so which means that, that when I take this two steps further what does this mean for me as uh, what is my role then as as a change management practitioner, it's not only to to, uh, use my tools in my toolbox, but also make sure that with my sponsor, I have that conversation. I'm not creating communities. Communities are already there. Mm -hmm. Um, It is discovering communities, but making sure that they can connect and that they can be activated. So I'm convinced that communities are already present. We need to discover them we need to be able to see them and connect them and make sure that, that they can have the enough permission to exist as an extra layer
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. so that's and, and that's that's the whole work and and the whole craft of um, of social architecture so that's that's where it started and okay. and, and um, we're, we're talking now about uh, when, I, when, when did I start looking at organizations in that sense? I would say 2008, 2009.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's, mm-hmm. it's been a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, I was reading your blog on the weekend um, to familiarize myself with some of your work ahead of today. And yeah, I saw some of the posts with, from 2008, 2009, 2014. So you've obviously been uh, on this journey yourself for a while. And do you, I guess, do you find something that you've been talking about and doing for a really long time still seems so new to other people when you bring it up and, and when you talk about it to your clients, for example?
1: But that, that's the thing. Um, since two thousand and nine, I've been I have been carving out that concept. And and when you read my blog, I I assume that that some of the pieces that I've written in in since are quite complex because i i use that block to to take really deep dives and to discover myself so i i I write in order to understand so so what you're reading there is is my own understanding process so i i well i think for most people it might be quite a complex block um and then i step out of it i come into practice again i come into contact with um uh with the community that i work with and then to your question um is is it still new i am surprised that the things that are so evident to me are really new in in each environment and that it's always um that i the, the the good part of it it's it's always an aha moment so uh people when you talk about community dynamics and community development They get stuck in, oh, yes, storytelling. Let's do a co-creation workshop and a world cafe. Mm. It's part of it, but that's just a tool. Uh, What we're really talking about is um, not only executives in a nice hotel. I am talking about um, making sure you take enough time with the people on the shop floor, producing your products with the people who are the customers and sales, re- sales representatives who are day-to-day in contact with your customers, that in the first place. Yeah. And, and the executive stuff, sure we need that, that's a sponsorship level and sure we need them to understand and connect with that level. But I'm more of um, I'm more a fan of, of doing it bottom up and then yep. starting the work on the shop floor.
0: Yeah. No, I agree with that a hundred percent. And I have also had crickets and tumbleweeds when I've mentioned that sort of stuff, when I've said words like co-design and, you know, let's see what the people who are actually doing the work think about this. Um, I remember there was one organization in particular, um, and I thought, it would be great to actually stand up a network of people from the front line. And that, I think it would, that organization's business was retail. I don't think I'm giving away the company because I've worked for a lot of retailers. Um, And I thought, you know, we're not asking, we're, we're doing all this change and we're not asking these people any opinions. And one of, and I thought this would be a no brainer. And I actually encountered really fierce resistance from people within my business unit thinking, what are you, and I thought, oh, this is just so foundational and basic. And I discovered what I was doing was quite disruptive. It, it took me a year to get it to happen, a year. Um, and one of the things that was said, and I think part of the problem was a lot of people in that organisation had started their career working in a store. And it had been quite some time since they worked in a store, but they thought that they knew they were able to be the subject matter expert. And, you know, they didn't quite understand that things had changed a lot since their store days. So that was one of the prevailing attitudes. But I remember a comment from a senior executive saying, we've already got too many opinions. And I had to bite my tongue because I wanted to say, yeah, we have too many opinions of head office people and managers and not enough opinions of the people. I probably should have said that. Yeah. If I had my time again, I probably would have said it. But I was like, oh, you know, better not upset him. But, yeah, I think you're right. Like, And often that sort of stuff is seen as, you know, it's going to take too long, it's going to slow us down, and it's seen as a blocker. Whereas it's like, well, it's, you're actually, one, your change will manage itself. You won't need to manage the change because the people who designed it, they will just roll it out and, you know, you won't need to apply, like, do all of this top-down leadership and, like, because it will already be communicated. And also, you won't make as many mistakes or you won't design the change incorrectly. So it's actually a lot harder to fix a change that is not fit for purpose once it's been implemented than just design it correctly in the first place.
1: But with that with that comment you're uh you're putting your finger where it hurts in our community is um the the presumption that when we uh, go to a shop floor or that we go into any environment of of our client that we should have all the answers um and and that is something if 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 there's something we need to to debunk or demystify is that um yes you have a toolbox as a change practitioner but um it is a big mistake to step into um uh into a certain environment or into a certain situation and um, to make sure that you have all the answers you need to have razor sharp questions and you need to have razor sharp curiosity and and genuine interest for what is for what is cooking there um, but having all the answers and having your presentation ready and being ready to shoot and to solve every problem that comes on to you uh, i discovered um, is is not really a good approach because what you're doing is is you're blocking off every you're blocking out every opportunity for people to um, start producing sense of their own situation, which is a very first step into taking ownership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as I said, producing sense, the, the word we use in social uh, psychology is, is uh, sense-making and organizational psychology. So, um, and, and that's the process that we should be, uh, that we should be um, accompanying.
0: Yes. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about that. Can you, Tell us a bit more about what is sense-making and maybe can you give an example of how you would go about that on engagement? Yeah. Um,
1: sense-making is, is, is really a, a conversation that happens. Um, and um, what, what we do in, in our change work is uh, we enter a context with the right questions. Um, and, and an example of the questions is uh, what, what does this change mean to you? Um, you come in and typically in a a technology implementation you you give the basic explanation first question I ask is uh, hey guys does this make sense Um, what are the obstacles that you see and and often it's quite a hard conversation where people start saying well this will not happen here because we are different Hmm? Hmm. Um, Hmm. this this will not happen here because um, we have a different system and then there's a second set of, of, of remarks, which are no remarks anymore, those are questions. But what if, what about, um, does this mean that we need to let go of the current system? And then there's a third set of question, what does this mean for me? Um, does this mean that we will need to be uh, skilled differently? Does this mean that, that um, my job will change and I um, Will you be the one giving me an extra colleague? Because what you're telling me is that I will have extra work. That set of questions. So um, when I'm in that context and I try to answer all those questions, that's um, that's the best way to uh, stop all evolution or every uh, opportunity for them to start making to continue to make sense of it. Um, does it mean I always go, no, I don't have the answer? No. I was about
0: to ask that one if you don't know the answer to these <laughs> questions.
1: <laughs> no. Um, it means that I'm genuinely uh, curious about um, what is already there. Um, and I get a long way just by making sure that I correctly understand that question. Uh, do you mean that you don't have that here because it's quite a bold statement that you're giving there. And then you have another conversation to no, 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 we have that. But, um, when you want to unlock that opportunity, you have to talk to that manager because budget X, budget Y, and then you have a different conversation. Um, so it's, it's hanging in there and having that conversation and and making sure that they can come to their senses, sense-making, um, by themselves but you are there and um, what you're actually doing, to, to put it metaphorically, is that you're making stone soup. And I think maybe you know that metaphor of, of the travelers making stone soup. So they, they enter into a village, they don't have anything, they put two rocks together and they say, well, we're, we're making stone soup. And then the uh, obnoxious and angry villagers, they come around them and they say, well, what are you going to cook with? You don't even have any water. And then the conversation starter of the traveler, which is the change consultant, is by any chance, you seem to be an expert. By any chance, would you have any water? And then they go in their obnoxious way of saying, of course I have, here you have. it." And then you go on. Would you have spices? Would you have vegetables? Would you have meat? And then before you know it, just by engaging who people who are initially obnoxious because you you made that intervention, uh, they bring all the ingredients. And it's, it's um, at the end of the day, they are all gathered around that soup that they forgot to realize that they made themselves because they brought all the ingredients. The only thing that you said is that, that you started out with two rocks and a conversation starter. And always that openness of mind, that curiosity to say, well, I don't have any, but... Maybe you have an idea. Maybe you have an idea, and that's the um, that's something that's not in the in the standard toolboxes of, of our change managers. Yet it's it's the essential tool of, of of survival. So that stone soup making is is how we how we do how we make sure that there's sense making going on.
0: Yeah, and I was about to say, like, that's, it's almost like to be, to level up as a change practitioner, you need to learn, you know, the traditional tools and templates and way of doing things and then you need to unlearn them so you can become a better practitioner because I know I personally have always felt like I need to have the answer, I need to have a plan, Um, you know, I need to always know what I'm going to do, otherwise I'm going to look like a bad change manager or a bad consultant. And I think we were talking about this before we hit record, but we were talking about Agile and Waterfall. And, you know, if somebody says, can I have a change plan in an Agile environment? And I'm like, no. (laughs) But the courage it takes to say no to a request and say, that's not the right solution or not not the right uh, piece of work to produce. But then I will say, well, how about we do a strategic change canvas um, which usually goes down. Okay. But, to, and you were talking, we were talking about communications plan as well. And so to say, no, I can't do a communications plan down to, you know, I can't tell you what exactly what I'm going to communicate and when over the next six months, it's impossible. And, um, it, but it takes a lot of bravery to say that.
1: Exactly. And, and of course, so I, I don't want to paint the illusion that that you don't have to have anything prepared. I think my confidence of saying that is because I have all these years of experience and i have Mm. all that scar tissue so i am quite good at improvising and maybe that is also wrong word. i'm quite good into looking back in what would be the tool in the back of my mind Mm -hmm. that is most appropriate right now and only then pick out that specific tool
0: yeah, I do the same thing. I think in the back of my head while I'm having a conversation I'm, and I'm like kind of almost going through like a, a filing cabinet of which, you know, which workshop facilitation technique or which, you know, yep. uh, piece of software or tech that I like or which tool will be the best for this situation. Um, so I think I, I, hear what you mean about not being sure that improvisation cause it's not improvisation. Cause you're not just making it up. You're actually, um, thinking on your feet and it's probably more, you know, agility of, of thought, but I, yeah, I fully agree. You've got to actually understand the situation and who the people are and you know, what you, how this company or organization works, and then think about what will be the best way of getting the result and what's the best way to go about it that will go down well here and not you know, full
1: yeah, flat. I, I, I do remember having a lot of discussions with, with young change practitioners who just came out of their certification. Uh. And, um, <laughs> they're pushing that client down their, down their tunnel of tools that they have just learned and, and uh, preferably in the sequence that they have learned it. Um, and so yeah. we have a lot of uh, disagreements about it. Then they see me... Um, interacting with the customer they think or it looks like i'm improvising all the time and then at certain moments they see me pick up a certain tool fresh out of their toolbox and they say well see now you're doing it so why can't i do it and that's about choosing the moment and that's about choosing the the right timing of 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 a specific tool Mm. so yeah yeah, um, oh, those, those, those with fresh, fresh out of yeah. their
0: certification course, change managers trying to do, uh, but that's just people are always trying to frame, put things back into their own frame of reference. And I think when people are just entering the industry and because uh, my personal recommendation is don't get a certification until you've been in the job, like learn on the job and decide which certification or learning is best for you. But I feel um, too many people in Australia, they get told, that oh, get a certification, it will help you get in, which I, I believe not to be true. Um, and then all of their frame of reference is just around whatever particular methodology they've gotten themselves certified in and there's no flexibility and, you know, um, it makes, I think it can block learning in some, in some cases. Um, because yeah, like I was talking to a friend about this when you've been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years, like you almost immediately go, oh yeah, we can do X, Y, Z and you can knock something out really quickly based it because it's all based on all your other projects that you've worked on and all your other experiences that you've had. Um, but I did want to ask one more question before we wrap up because I'm conscious of time um, but I did want to ask um, what tips do you have for success when you are applying change management principles in a community development setting?
1: That's quite that's quite a question so um, what tips do I have when, when when people want to start out and, and, and experiment with, with social architecture is that the question mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I have throughout the community work i'm doing um subsequently Uh, so i also work with neighborhoods i have i have learned from sociologists and anthropologists quite some stuff and and the first thing is um and that's a tool for yourself you don't have to be explicit about it to your customer but it's to slow down and to listen and to pick up the pace of your target audience and and that's something I really learned for, from, um, uh, from anthropologists is that they, um, they go into an environment, they have an explicit awareness of the potential that is already there. Um, and whereas I would go into an environment and I'm explicitly aware of the solutions that I'm carrying with me. Uh, so I am not capable of slowing down and picking up the pace of target audience. So, so slowing down, I, I, would, I would really say, is, is something that's, that's essential and, and, and crucial. Um, the other thing would be, I, I can only pick a few things, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing which I, which I really learned from neighborhood development is asking the question, would people still show up if they were not on your payroll. And, and that's something I learned from working with, with neighborhoods and, and um, something that is totally um, on, on the outside of our change management um, methodologies, it's neighborhood capacity development. And there is the there is one model I, I'd like to talk about very shortly, very briefly. It's a two for with by tool and two, For, with, by is um, asking or or categorizing your interventions into four categories. The two categories is change is decided without us to be done to us. Second category is for, change is chosen for us to do and to be provided for us. The with category is change is consulted with us on what we what is going to happen with us, and then the final category is the buy category. So it's it's two for with buy, change is done by us. And asking at a certain moment or, or taking a break in your change intervention, and, and and let's and see well to what extent are we doing doing the change to, for with or by the people makes you aware of the question would people still show up if they were not on your payroll and that's a very essential question because as we said in the very beginning what is what is the purpose of our change interventions is that people start taking ownership of that future situation? It, it's it goes way beyond installation and that is that is a very handy tool it comes straight out of abcd which is asset-based community development working with neighborhoods so that would be um, that would be a recommendation. That's that's a tool you can apply immediately. Categorize all your in, in initiatives onto a two forward with buy scale.
0: Amazing. Thank that would be my
1: major takeaway here.
0: Okay, that's great. Um, and before we wrap up, where can people get more Luke? Um, where can they learn more? Um,
1: two two ways I would say um, when you're interested in in the very latest developments, I would say just reach out to me because very honestly, it's been a long time since I have blogged. When you want to dive deep into uh, my own process of understanding, well, you can you can dive into my blog, but just know that it's not the most most recent thing because um, currently I'm I'm doing a lot of work with neighborhoods and discovering things there, and I have stopped promising people that I will be writing a book because I've been saying that since 2011. even though I am convinced that I will still be writing a book this lifetime. But I've stopped putting an end date on that.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I'll make sure the link to your blog is included in the show notes. And yeah, Yeah. the listeners just can hit Luke up on LinkedIn to get more. Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm (laughs) open to that. I'm open to that. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing all of that amazing knowledge on Casa de Cambio podcast. And for the listeners, we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you so much, Luke. Thank you. This was fun. It was so much fun.